You're listening to highlights from the Creative Processes interview with John Yates, Executive Director of the Youth Endowment Fund and author of Fractured, How We Learn to Live Together. This podcast is supported by the Jan Michalski Foundation. I'm wondering about public spaces in your research, how the spaces, the buildings we live in, our proximity to others, whether it's in a tightly packed metropolitan area or more spaced out, how that affects on our ability or our tendencies to separate. Yeah. Generally, the smaller the space, the more people will connect. So let me explain what I mean by that. In a big city, I think it's easy to think, oh, it's a big city. It's probably more diverse on sort of an income basis, on an ethnic basis, or an educational basis. There's probably the whole of life is here. Therefore, it's going to be better at connecting people together. The evidence wouldn't go with that. The, the evidence would say the more mixed an area, the more choice you have about who to connect with and who to keep up with. And the more you have a tendency to let people like me syndrome kick in, and the more you end up surrounded by people who have loads of different life experiences, telling people how you love living in the city because it's full of so much difference, and then actually having a dinner party with six people who vote the same way as you do and have the same level of education that you do. In smaller places, you may well have less diversity, but people sort of have less choice and they somewhat have to get on with it. There's a really interesting study. This has been tested in in, in schools. Smaller schools lead to more mixed friendship groups. Universities, smaller university campuses lead to more mixed friendship groups. And you do see the same thing in the size of the the city or the town. So you've got to think about, well, how do we design our neighbourhoods and how do we create a sense of, of, of villageness almost? And where do you place things? So, you know, if you place a library or a park or a pub very clearly in this neighbourhood, which is full of, you know, highly educated, well-off, privileged people, when you could place it here, but where the two meet, you know, you should just be aware of what the difference is. I think the other thing to be really careful of, housing is huge. I think we've made some really big errors here over the last decade. London is fortunate in that it was bombed. So let me explain what I mean by that. So it was bombed badly in the Second World War. And in those little pockets, so you ended up with streets that were still there, and then a house was missing. And so what happened is where that house was gone, we would tend to build some flats. And so you'd end up with a very mixed set of housing with different types of family units and family sizes and different levels of income being able to live quite near to each other. And that created actually small neighbourhoods that were quite diverse by an income point of view, which is great for kids from poor backgrounds needing opportunities because those networks are really good for them. But recently what we've done is we've said, look, actually, we're not sure we like this. And we've removed some of the subsidies that have made that possible for some of those poorer families on the basis that why are they getting money to live in this lovely part of London? Now, I can you can see the logic for that argument. Why should these people be supported to live here when other people can't afford to? But it's made a less mixed environment. And the same in, in the US, there's been a sort of slowdown in the building and the provision of support for how people to be able to access housing they wouldn't normally be able to afford. And there's been you know, a reluctance to accept the building of multi-family accommodation in spaces where people are used to planning rules that protect the area and it's just you know, houses, no flats. Now, that sort of planning, I think, is problematic because it creates a more segregated neighbourhood by wealth and makes people very anxious about people who are on less income. So what can we do day-to-day ordinary people 
to overcome this sort of fear of the other or all these other anxieties that you were talking about? Yeah, so I think there's three three things in the book. I suggest 42 things you can there's 32 things you can do right now. So feel free if, if my list of three isn't enough, pick up the book and have a look. But you know, three things that we anyone could do. So the first one is go to your social media account if you're on social media. If you're not on social media, bravo. <laughs> but if you are on social media as I am, go to Twitter, which is my sort of poison of choice, and just look at the last 10 people that tweeted. And if you agree with them on pretty much everything add a couple of new people to follow who you don't agree with who so if you're you know if you're a committed republican add, add a couple of people who are clearly democrats if you're committed democrat republicans ditto whatever country you're in and i don't mean people who are purposely divisive and purposely hateful but i do mean people who might have views that you strongly disagree with so that would be the first thing that any of us can do and it's really easy and quick to do the second thing is join something Find some club, society, organisation that you might join that's locally. Ideally, one that doesn't cost very much or even one that's free. You could volunteer somewhere because then you're likely to more likely to meet a mix of people and go to four sessions. And if you hate it, stop going. Pat yourself on the back. Feel proud of yourself. You had a go at it. Well done. That's brilliant. But you know, just try it. The third one then is what I would call hospitality. Once a year, invite some of your neighbours round. But don't pick them. Uh, you don't pick the ones who you think are most likely to say yes. Either pick them on the basis of how close they live to you or roll a dice <laughs> and on that basis, invite them. And if you're thinking, oh, I couldn't invite all my neighbours around, just invite two. <laughs> or if, if you go invite two, invite one person. Make it a number that you can just absolutely nail. If you're like, I can't cook for them, don't cook for them. <laughs> Have a cup of tea or a cup of coffee. Just make it as low effort as possible. But once a year, give that a go. Three things that any of us could do. Awesome. That's, that's really great. Now, you have such a unique perspective. It's really amazing. And I know you talked about the different bubbles that you kind of traverse in within your life. But is there some perspective that you gained as a stand-up comic that has shaped this outlook? Oh, that's a that's a phenomenal question. I should say I was a I was I was, I failed very fast as a stand-up comic. I was persistently mediocre for a period of time, which is the worst because you don't even have funny stories about how awful you were. But you you do learn things. I mean, the the, the first thing I think you learn is you've got to understand how other people think, because ultimately when you're walking on stage. You know, you, you're thinking, what are they thinking of this person? And they're probably looking at me thinking, who's this nerdy, ginger head, uh, looks ludicrously young. I mean, I look slightly older now, but I've never really aged very well. The person who's, you know, who is this preppy kid who's going to try and make them laugh, who probably looks like he should be doing studying for his doctorate. Like You've got to somehow sort of get inside people's heads, you know, and, and, and the nature of trying to make people laugh is understanding their thought pattern as you're talking and then trying to subvert it slightly. And so I, I think the other thing is, you know, um, and as I say, I'm not, you know, I was not a great comedian, but you've got to, you've got to get comfortable with the concept of projection. Like you're going to walk out on stage and some of the people are not going to find you funny. Uh, and they're going to think you wasted their time. And you know what? They're not going to remember that the next day. And it's not the end of the world. And actually, one of the reasons we don't cross boundaries a bit or we don't go and talk to that person who, you know, is too posh, not posh enough, whatever it might be, is because we think they're going to reject us. 
And actually, rejection is not the worst thing that can happen to you, especially if you're coming from a place of relative privilege. And so, you know, those are those are some of the things that, that struck me. Thank you. I want to speak a little bit about, I don't want to say failures, but what you learned from your early works in charity. And you must say that now you're hugely successful with the Youth Endowment Fund, 200 million sterling. You'll update me on the figures. So what have you learned from that process? A struggle with charities or nonprofits is that it can take a lot of energy doing this kind of administrative, or the, the, the good works that you want to do is spent fundraising or spent in other activities. So how do you find the energy for what is the core activity? Yeah, it's a great question. I think we have a saying at the Youth Endowment Fund, which we've nicked from someone, which is the main thing is keeping the main thing, the main thing. The main thing is keeping the main thing, the main thing. And, and I think it's really, it sounds nonsense, but it's really profound the main thing for the Youth Endowment Fund is trying to reduce violence for young people. That's the main thing. It's not keeping funders happy. It's not keeping my board happy. It's not keeping me happy. It's not keeping the staff happy. It's not being a bit more efficient. These are all good things. And we should try and do them, but they're not the main thing. And I think the danger is that with, with a charity, you can get very distracted by raising the money or producing a great report or getting in the media or getting in the press, all the things that might get you praised, but they're not the main thing. And so I think that that's so key. I think the way to think about it is your first love. What's the thing that got you into wanting to be a charity in the first place? It wasn't to raise money. Like it wasn't to get in the paper. It was because you wanted to solve a problem. And so, you know, trying to keep your focus, I think is really important. Well, I, I've learned a colossal amount from failure. I mean, I, I've failed more than most people, definitely, because I think I've taken, I've tried more things than most people. My hit rate's probably okay, but my number of failures is decently high. And I, I think I've learned that you can't totally predict what's going to work and what's not going to work unless you do it. And I, I spent time, as I say, at Oxford University and at McKinsey. Those things train you to plan everything and to work it, think it all through. But the truth is you can't plan everything. Same as doing stand-up comedy, right? You, you, can have a, you can have a routine, but someone heckles you, you're going to have to do something different. And so I think I learned, actually, not everything goes according to plan. And some of the things that work best don't go according to plan. You've got to somehow find the space to reflect and look and see what's working and adjust. And sometimes you've got to say something's not working and quit. And that's painful, but that's okay. Failure is meant to be painful, but it, it's not, it doesn't kill you. So I'm very interested in the child development as well. We've been doing a lot of interviews with neuroscientists, for example, mm -hmm. and even discussing things like the rates of criminality and, and whether one is responsible with one's neuroplasticity when one is young for the things that even crimes that might one might commit. And so what are your reflections on the, the people we are as young people and the people we become and then how we can better nurture those who are at risk to achieve their best selves? Yeah, I mean, it's a, this is a deep, deep question. But um, I think, you know, no man is an island, as John Dunn said. No child is an island. And to live a flourishing life, in my view, is to, is to live a, a good life in community with others. Our lives only really... My, my wife once said to me before we were married, she said, can I ever really know you? Like, can we ever really know each other? And I'm being really struck by this question. You know, can we ever get beyond really deeply to know the person? And I thought about it for a long time. And I thought, do you know what? Who am I? I am partly the relationships that I hold. 
So, you know, without sounding too cliched, like I don't think it's just that my wife works to get to know me. The relationship with my wife is part of what makes me me. So, you know, she, she doesn't just try and get to know me. She sort of completes me. That sounds very sort of like a Hollywood movie quote. But you know what I mean? Like, I think we are who we are in relationships. And I think young, if I think particularly about young men who go on to commit acts of violence, and obviously this is true of women too, but we do have a particular problem with male violence. A lot of it is that sense of insecurity, you know, that sense of who am I? How do I fit into this? Why am I of worth? And a lot of that, to my view, is back to relationships. And the relationships we form when we're young with the adults we're most born to trust, our mum and if they're our dad, those are fundamental relationships. And then the friendships that we form. And if actually those relationships don't, don't become ones that suggest that people are trustworthy, that, that is really difficult, I think, for humans to handle. And it, it makes it hard for us to learn things like self-control, you know, things like love, things like acceptance, things like self-acceptance. Someone pointed out to me a brilliant piece of research the other day that showed the number of violent events committed by the age of the child. Bear with me. Do you think that a 10-year-old is more or less violent than a two-year-old? Is a 15-year-old more or less violent than a 10-year-old? The truth is, the two-year-olds are the most violent. Three-year-olds are slightly less violent. Four-year-olds are slightly less violent, more violent. Five-year-olds, we basically become less violent as we get older. We just don't think of two-year-olds as being violent, crazed, maniacs because they don't really hurt us (laughs) because they're two we learn through our relationships how to control our desires and our feelings and we learn to stop using violence over time but some of us don't and that's a failure of society to look after our children and we've got to provide that acceptance that warmth and that tutoring that some of us find very hard to pick up We hope you've enjoyed listening to these highlights. To listen to the latest episodes or learn more about participating in exhibitions or interviews, click on subscribe. Thank you for listening.